Welcome to the PT Project Podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm your host, James. We know that biomechanics can seem like a complicated and confusing field, but it really doesn't have to be. Join us every Thursday as we explore various topics related to biomechanics, human movement, and what it means to be a great PT in general. In other words, let us help you make sense of this wonderful world so that you can become the best trainer you possibly can be. Welcome back, guys and girls. We are here today to talk about the delts, some boulder shoulder work or some crap like that. That's a terrible intro, but it's what I've decided to, <laughs> it's what I've decided to go with. I can only apologize. The better intro is, well, we were going to go with glutes, and then Jim, <laughs> Jimbo doesn't have any glutes, so it's like, well, we haven't got any authority on that matter. So. I mean, is, uh, we're being like, right, we're doing delts or glutes today. And he was like, uh, well, I don't have any glutes, so I can't talk to anyone about, <laughs> about glutes. <laughs> and we're doing delts, so that's, that's Jimbo's new take on things. Um, yep. So delts right hopefully you guys know well enough that this is just a fancier term for your shoulders right so we're going to be talking about training the shoulders we're going to try and follow roughly the same approach we've been doing with our anatomy series of this little outline with some of the structural stuff a little bit about the muscle itself and then trying to go into some rough application as always it is difficult to talk about anatomy on a purely audio level so hopefully you'll be able to follow along with this but if we're thinking about the shoulder the shoulder's the most complicated joint you've really got in your body. And it's like a complex of different joints. We've got the scapula, the shoulder blade, sitting on the rib cage, which also means the rib cage positioning or your thoracic spine positioning makes a difference to where the shoulder blade sit. And then where the shoulder blade is sitting makes a difference to where the shoulder joint, which we're going to call the glenohumeral joint, right? Just fancy one. That is the joint most people think of when they think of their shoulder joint. So the humeral part comes from the word humerus, which is just the name for your upper arm bone. And the gleno in glenohumeral comes from a thing we call the glenoid, right? Now, if we've got a scapula, if you imagine, let's retract for a second and go, if you think of the hip, if you've ever seen a pelvis, we tend to think we've got two ball and socket joints, hip and shoulder. That's one of the things you'll learn pretty early on in PT stuff, or maybe you've just vaguely heard it if you're not a PT. Well, the hip is much more like a ball and an actual socket. Like the head of where the femur goes into sort of encapsulates it, wraps around it. It does look quite a bit like a socket. It's not bad. The shoulder, annoyingly doesn't really look like that. We call it a ball and socket, but that's being very loose with the term socket. It's ball sitting on a golf tee, if anything. Like the size of the socket, really, really small. Now that allows it quite a lot of freedom of movement, especially when we combine it with scapular motion, but it just means it's not the most stable joint. It requires a lot of muscular force and a lot of ligaments and stuff to really stabilize that guy versus the hip. That's why it's so much easier to dislocate your shoulder than it is to dislocate your hip, okay? So the gleno part of glenohumeral, if we're back on our shoulder blade, the little socket, the golf tee that the humerus sits on, we call that the glenoid fossa or the glenoid, we'll call it now. So it's really that little fossa, the golf tee, as it meets the humerus, that is the glenohumeral joint. And if we're interested in training the delts, that's the guy we're interested in because the delts cross the scapula to the humerus, right? So all of them insert about, actually weirdly, they insert further down your arm than you probably realize. Well, I think when I first started learning about the delts, I was like, they go how far down, 
right? It just sort of doesn't look like it goes that far down your arm. But they're actually about the deltoid tuberosity. There's that word tuberosity, potatoey, bony bump, if you've listened to the other kind of stuff we've done on uh, insertions and attachments before. Deltoid tuberosity, about halfway down your arm, okay, on the outside of your arm. But it goes round a little bit because the front stuff attaches a bit more to the front and the outside, and the back stuff attaches more to the back and the outside of the humerus in those positions. So deltoid tuberosity, about halfway down the arm. All of the delts insert, they fan their way down into this narrow kind of ish point, and that's where they insert onto. And then if we think about where they originate, so we're up on the shoulder blade, the scapula. Now you will find some people saying we've got maybe seven different divisions uh, of, of the shoulder blade. There's some Japanese stuff looking at that, and more people are suggesting it now. I, it's just a big fan, right? Whether it's seven, three, eight hundred and four, whatever, right? We can roughly divide it to the front stuff, the mid stuff, and the back stuff. So in our anatomy terms, we have the anterior delt, the front shit, the posterior delt, the back shit. Now, here's the one everyone gets wrong. They call it the medial delt. It's not the medial. Medial means toward the midline. And if anything, that bit's further away, right? So it should be your lateral delt, or you could call it your mid delt or middle delt. So people do this thing when they call it the medial delt. It's like, well, you don't understand the term, so stop using the fancy term because you got it wrong and just call it the fucking mid delt, right? So the mid bit. Okay, if we start at the front, if you imagine your collarbone going along, on the first two thirds of the collarbone, you've got the upper part of your pec, and then you can actually feel this on yourself. You've got a little gap that you can actually wedge your fingers into between the edge of the pec major and the start of the anterior delt. So the anterior delt is on like the last outside third of the collarbone. If we follow along the edge of that collarbone, then we come to a, a point that some people may have heard injuries to your AC joint. It's called your acromioclavicular joint. And part of your scapula is called your acromion. If you've ever seen pictures of a chromium, it looks like this fingery thing that sits over the top of the glenoid itself. That's called the acromion. And the acromion interacts with the clavicle, fancy name for the shoulder, uh, for the, I was going to say the fucking shoulder blade. That is not the word <coughs> I want for the collarbone, right? If we follow that collarbone along, it interacts with the acromion. So you have this acromioclavicular joint, but where that acromion starts is where the mid delt, the lateral delt, not the medial delt, starts to originate. And so the mid delt goes along the acromion, along the finger that's over the head of the glenoid. And then again, both of those guys go down toward the deltoid tuberosity. And then as we come round the back to the posterior delt, we've got a thing, and again, these will be easier if you can see some stuff. You've got a thing called the spine uh, of the scapula. If we're looking on the back side of it, there's like a ridge that sticks out. Uh, and basically your, your posterior delt runs along that ridge there and then sweeps down. So we've got anterior, mid, de uh, mid delt, and then posterior delt. They all swoop down in a nice big fan shape into the deltoid tuberosity. And because of these different fiber directions, they can do different shit, right? The front stuff doesn't do the same thing as the back stuff. The mid stuff doesn't do the same thing as either of them. But of course there's overlap because it's a fan. So you can kind of like move along the fan a little bit and get bits of each one. Um, so we could be doing things like just abduction, like a dumbbell lat raise where you pull your arm up the humerus away from the side of the body. We could be flexing the shoulder, driving the arm forwards like you're trying to punch something or doing a press, or you could be extending the shoulder going backwards. Depending on also how we line up, we might say that we can get some internal and external rotation a little bit from those guys as well. So there's, there's a lot of possibility for the delt. So that's our overview of the delt. I'm going to shut up and Jimbo can tell you about things that aren't his glutes. <laughs> <laughs>
just to carry on with that last point there, how there's a lot of possibility when it comes to especially training size stuff. I know in my early days, I'm sure no one listening to this would do this, but in my early days, I might have done a dumbbell lateral raise, um, and I might have done a leaning dumbbell lateral raise, and I might have done a machine lateral raise. But everything was almost through this same path of motion, almost through this same plane. So it might not have been exactly out to the side, but in a sense it was almost in this frontal plane where things were moving out to the side through ab and adduction. Whereas the amazing thing about the shoulder, as Paul touched on, obviously, yes, it's a shit ball and socket, but it still has got the ability to move. <laughs> we haven't got to be fixed to this exact position. So if you can recall back to knee flexion, knee extension, elbow flexion, elbow extension, we're in the joints there where we've pretty much got to line ourselves up. We're moving almost forward and back. Whereas now we've got this flexibility. We've got this freedom of motion, which has its pros and cons, but we can soon adjust our position mm. So it's appropriate maybe for us as an individual, appropriate for our clients. We've just got more play. We haven't got to do everything in this frontal plane. We haven't got to do everything purely through ab and adduction. We could start in a somewhat flexed shoulder position. So we could bring the elbow in front of the shoulder, the hands in front of the shoulder, and then go through some form of abduction there. Take the arms out to the side, but the arms start in front. And that gives the ability to sometimes if we've got maybe certain issues certain impingements certain injury wise stuff like that we can play with our position we can play with our alignment rather thinking okay we've only got this one position this one setup we can use and actually sometimes when we do go in a little bit of flexion and through abduction even sometimes maybe when we do go maybe through a little bit of external rotation and abduction it can quote unquote feel nicer i don't want to say you should never go purely through abduction never go through through abduction in an internal rotated position um, but I've had an experience with a lot of clients in the past, whereas when you add a bit of external rotation, when you add a bit of flexion, you get more range of motion there and it feels nicer in the joint. We're not going to touch on, or maybe Paul can if he wants to, but it's hard to visualize, hard to know when we're just talking, what's exactly going on and the reasons for that. Um, but just know straight away from a practical application point of view, because there's lots of stuff going on in the shoulder, that as soon as we get to that joint position, it feels nicer as we go in through an adduction. One thing you could easily do if you're just listening to this to, to test this. If you, so you've got to go through a, a, a dumbbell lat raise type motion with your humerus, so what we call abduction, movement in the frontal plane, if we want it's fancy thing, right? Well, what I want you to do is turn your arm in as far as you can, trying to turn that thumb around and almost face it to the wall behind you type thing. Internally rotate your humerus as much as you possibly can. And keeping that internal rotation, just see how high you can get your arm. Right, and just go, when does it feel like it reaches into a block? And then when you hit that blocking point that you can't get any further, externally rotate your arm and see if you can get it any further. And unless something is very wrong with your shoulder joint, you will suddenly find, ah, okay, I can go further. For reasons that you, we're not even going to try to explain because there's no way you'll see it, right? <laughs> or picture it well. But you need some external rotation when your humerus starts getting out to the side and then up above your head. And so if you try and jam into, you know, the old dumbbell um, lat raise tip of pouring water out of the jug type thing, which can work for certain things, but you can definitely overemphasize it and end up being in massive amounts of internal rotation. Like, this just hurts. I can't really feel like I'm getting anywhere. It's just awkward. Um, or you could just, I could do turning a jug just from my radio on the joint and not have any impact on my humerus whatsoever, right? So there's lots of things to consider when we're doing these bits and pieces. But we're, we're going to try not to get lost into the weeds because, frankly, unless you see stuff, it, it's hard to fully follow along unless you already go, I know what they're talking about ahead of time. So, all right, if we start with them, maybe trying to train, 
let's we'll work from front to back, right? So we're going anterior delt, round and mid delt, and then we're trying to hit the kind of back stuff. How do you program much by the way of anterior delt stuff for clients? If yes, why? If no, why? Can you give us a little bit of your thoughts on training anterior delt? Um, I'll say yes, but not in a traditional sense of we're doing like a front lateral raise. Yeah. Uh, they very rarely, if ever, over the last couple of years, out of wherever 100 odd clients that have I programmed a front lateral raise. I think I did a couple during lockdown when I had very little. I got to think of something. They got five <laughs> kilo dumbbells. Exactly. What can I do? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but yes, they'll get trained with a, an overhead press movement. They'll get trained with incline press, with flat press, with any press, the anterior delt. So, but there's not a direct thing that, okay, this is going to quote unquote isolate that motion isolate that muscle and we're going to go through rather than a lateral raise moving out to the side we're going to go through a front um raise movement so no i can't think of the last time i actually programmed that because find me a person who's got overdeveloped or sorry under church so i say underdeveloped anterior delts relative to mid delta relative, yeah, exactly. relative to pec relative to other proportions going on there I don't think I've come across a client yet in the last 15 years plus <laughs> that's had that. No, same. They'd have to have some like wasting disease in their arm or some shit I think, before, you'd, before you'd be likely to see that. Like it's really hard to separate out what the anterior delt does from what the upper pec does. So basically anytime you're doing what those guys do, do and you're doing any of your pressing stuff whether that's arms by the side of the body or in like a more of a flat sort of we could call transverse plane type thing anterior delt and upper pack are, they're right next door to each other they're not that far away in their or in their insertions their fiber directions are really really similar it's really hard to separate out upper pack and anterior delt and so it tends to get a lot of work and almost especially for guys like what guy have you ever come across who hasn't done a fuckload of pressing? <laughs> that doesn't happen, right? So, okay. So, say I'm the same as Jim Bell. I very rarely program in anything that you would think of as, like, just an anterior delt thing. No, it tends to get enough love in all of the pressing work that you're doing. So, we're going to basically ignore it because it's a show-off as it is and start working our way around. So, all right, mid-delt. What are you thinking, Jimbo? Yeah, even just carrying on from that previous point, though, as soon as we start hitting fatigue with anything we're working through a lateral raise type movement, a mid delt type movement, unless we've got a high level of skill, unless we've got a high level of awareness of our position, we're going to start to go to a position where we start to bias that anterior anyway. It's, we're going to be stronger as we start to externally rotate and the anterior delt becomes on top of the movement and has that ability to create that concentric contraction. So as fatigue kicks in, even with a high skill, with a high awareness, is still going to shift into that area as well. So we don't need to place that emphasis on there because it gets hit with a shed load of pressing. It gets hit with fatigue through lateral raise type movements anyway. Um, so it's always getting stimulus. It's always getting work. Like if you're if you're thinking of again, we'll just keep going with dumbbell lat raises because they're the most common thing that are done. If you think of, I call it the elbow pit, right? So literally the pit of your elbow. If you're imagining that normally you're trying to keep that facing forwards to some degree 
what starts to happen is people start fatiguing, other than the fact they're not launching it with their hips and some other shit. If you watch their arm, that elbow pit starts externally rotating. It starts facing more and more towards the ceiling, which means anterior delt is trying to sit more and more on top of the axis and fight what's going on. So your body is like, get off this mid delt. Let's get those guys in, involved a little bit more. So yeah, absolutely. I don't know if anyone listening to us is old enough to really recall watching some of Arnie's training videos. But if you do go on YouTube, Arnie doing lateral raises, I think he did the extreme movement where he came all the way above his head. But however, he'd always perform them. He'd finished in this point where this elbow pit was pointing up, as Paul's mentioned. He'd finished to a point where he's going through degrees of external rotation, degrees almost of leaning back. He'd be extended through his lower back, extended through his lumbar spine a little bit. And this anterior delt would just create 90% of the movement, whatever the figure is, random figure. But he'd be in a position where his sort of middle delt was doing uh, minimal, if any, work. You guys have watched Mike Israel do what he calls super full range of motion lat raises. <laughs> Same thing, right? He's going, you, you physically can't get above your head without externally rotating your arm and without scapular motion, right? That's just not going to happen unless, again, something has gone horrifically wrong in your arm, right? So in order to get up there, your anterior delt is going to be sat on the, on the top when your arm sweeps past that 90 degrees and starts carrying on its way up. There's no way around that. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. Just know that you've shifted the load from the mid-delt to something else at that point. Now, as long as you're okay with that, and then that's fine. You might go, well, cool, I get to target even more stuff as I go through it. And if that's your argument, then I'm, I have no qualms with that. What you can't say is once I get past that point, it's definitely more mid-delt now. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> And almost to discuss on the topic in terms of the range of motion there, you're saying obviously come to a point where we take uh, the arm all the way above the head. The increase as we go through a larger range of motion, we're not getting 100% of that through this shoulder itself, through this glenoid humor. We've got this scapula that starts to move as we go through the motion. Um, and I know I previously have, have taught, I previously have been educated that we've got to hold this stable position. Hmm. We've got to lock down. And then it's gone the other way within the industry over the last few years that oh, you've got to allow free movement of the scapula. You don't want to think about restricting it in any way. You don't want to think about locking it down. So it's gone from one extreme to the other, and that's just the fitness industry for you. And neither extremes are correct. In a sense, and some clients, they may want to lock down. They may want to stabilize, whereas some clients may want to not think about it and just have a conscious thought on someone else and not have any awareness of the scapula uh, movement there. But the larger range of movement we go through the shoulder, the more the scapula is going to have to come into play and the less choice we've got. One of the things you Yeah, go, keep going. I'm just saying we, we may choose a position in the start or a range of motion at the start when we're working with a client that we can maybe go through a bit more of a stable scapula position where we're trying to hold it relatively stable. Um, and then as they progress in skill, we're like, okay, now let's increase range of motion. Now let's change your body position. Now let's adjust things to allow that scapula to move freely on there because they might have this thing where they always elevate their scapula up. They shrug up. So their scapula almost goes up towards their ears, maybe too early in the movement. So it looks like they're going up first before their arm actually goes out to the side or there's just something with this rhythm between the scapula and between the shoulder joint that's just not quite right and just doesn't look quite right. So then we have to play. We have to experiment and try stuff. And, oh, let's stabilize this position and then go through a lateral raise. See how if, that feels. If our general gist on most exercises that we're training is that 
okay, I'm trying to apply tension to a muscle and then change the length of that muscle under an appropriate load as it goes through that, right? You can, pro unless we're doing isometrics, that's going to be the gist of, of what we're doing. And so, okay, we've said the delt is primarily, no, oh, I shouldn't even say primarily, the delt is going to do glenohumeral motion. Okay, so movement on my arm in that shoulder socket. Well, my arm can look like it got higher up in space without any movement necessarily having occurred in the glenohumeral. And this is one of those things where you have to get your eye in. Like it is a skill to start looking at it because when we first start watching, generally you're kind of watching the position of just the arm in space. So if I see the arm go up, well then that was, that was surely that was my shoulder, wasn't it? And it is difficult to differentiate when you're starting out, I think. Like that, that sort of, well, did it come from glenohumeral? Did it come from scapular, like rotating up and then elevating slightly? Did it come from a bit of a combination of those things? And how do I then know, okay, no, 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 okay, I want this glenohumeral motion. I might allow a little bit of scapular motion within there, but I'm primarily concerned in changing the length of the delt under load, so I know that needs to come from glenohumeral motion. So, okay, can I see that in a client? And if you can't see it yet, good luck knowing whether you're doing it, right? Because, well, you can't correct that which you can't see and identify. So, We've got to develop that skill and, and get your eye in for those bits. Like You'll often see it as well with people that they might start by using a bunch of glenohumeral motion and then as fatigue starts kicking in, okay, their arm is still moving up and down in space, but it's no longer coming from that same rotation. Their, their traps and their levator scap are helping them out and, and what have you. And so the arm looks like it's moving up and down, but the delt hasn't actually changed length underneath that load as much. So it is a skill to start developing those bits and pieces. Um, and we may as well, because we haven't touched on, on these ones kind of yet within here. Preferences, can you, what are your, let's maybe do this. What are your favorite like two or three exercises for mid delt. We'll, we'll preface this with, this won't work for everyone. There needs to be consideration of the individual and all of that kind of shit. But what's Jimbo's favorite ones for, for your own training for it? Um, for my own training, if the setup's appropriate, you can't beat a, a cable lateral raise. And there's obviously infinite number of setups that could be used and they're done. So the way I might set up is going to be different to Paul. The way I, we set up is going to be different to the next person. But some form of setup with a cable so we can get a bit more loading throughout the range. Whereas a dumbbell, we've got a load in that start position, but it's not challenging the lateral day if we're in that start position, unless we use a quick bit of force and we try and drive it out the bottom there. But either way, at this moment in time, it's really heavy at the top, really light relative to the bottom. And for years, actually, I went away from doing dumbbell lateral raises as a thing, I've got to have this movement, this perfect profile. Whereas actually now, little bits with my own training, but probably more so to an extent sometimes with clients' training, depend on where they're at, depend on whether we're pushing volume, whether we're reducing volume, whether skill-wise where they're at, I might actually play it a bit more and use it a bit more now. Um, but a, a cable lateral raise, and then I sit well with, I've got a machine lateral raise um, as well, and I fit into that really well, and it feels really nice for me. But some clients... I try to get in there and I'm just adjust them. It just doesn't feel right. They just can't get comfortable kind of right. But for myself, um, going Jimbo. through a machine lateral raise movement feels beautiful. Jimbo has the wingspan of an albatross. So if Jimbo fits in a machine, most people won't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there, there'd be my two go-tos. I'll do a little bit of overhead pressing. Mm -hmm. Um, now, and obviously we know that's got a massive bias to the anterior delt. And it, again, it's something like the dumbbell lateral raise where, I didn't probably do that movement for years. I stayed away from it. I thought, okay, as long as I'm doing overhead pulling movements and my joint motion is getting into that end range, I thought I'm okay. But now actually I do like to sort of 
sporadically bring that back in um, as well. But it's not a huge emphasis. It is predominantly through lateral raise based movements, very different positions. Here's one of the things as well. Like, so the, if you're, you know, when we do overhead pressing, it's not like there's no middle delt in that, depending on the person's position. Like the front portion of the mid delt might still be really well aligned. Like people vary in where their acromium sits, where the mid delt originates. Some people sit back a little bit further, in which case for them, yeah, no, it probably isn't that great. But some people's acromium hooks over quite a long way and is quite far forwards, which means it's not that different from other people's anterior delt in parts of it. So you've kind of got these bits where, again, you get better at seeing these things as you work with more clients and what have you, where you kind of go, all right, that, that works pretty well for that particular thing, or mm, they're going to have less mid-delt and blah, 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 blah. One and, thing if you there's someone, and if there's someone where the acromion sits slightly more anteriorly and on the deltoid tuberosity as well, that's slightly more anteriorly as well, because that's going to vary. So you could have maybe the same acromion position on one person, but more of an anterior position, um, and then it's going to really slant forwards or backwards, depending on which way you look at it. Um, or you could have both anterior, both posterior. Like it's going to vary from one person to the next. So trying to, if you can, visualize where them fibers are going, or if you get hands on and get in there and palpate, then that can work really well. From okay, how I'm going to set up this lateral raise movement? Am I going to bring in an overhead press and then get an idea? Okay, is that just more going to bias anterior? Or is that going to get a bit more of this lateral delt involved as well? I think one thing we, um, Jimbo mentioned at the dumbbell lat raise, and you guys can try this out because I think everybody, when they first get into biomechanics stuff, goes through a similar boat of like, yeah, let's cuff everything, let's cable everything. And then you're like, actually, do you know what? I don't mind a dumbbell lat raise. It feels all right. I get quite a bit out of this. Here's one where you can literally fuck around with it for a, a client to have fun, where you go, all right, I'm just going to work within the top third top half of the movement so I don't come all the way down to my arms or by my sides and I work until it burns and I'm crying and I'm going reasonably slowly with that and then as I'm starting to fatigue I let it come down a little bit lower and I start chucking it up a little bit faster out of the bottom position so I can use some of that <clears throat> some of that I'm still going to try and make sure it comes from my shoulder socket not from like thrusting my groin towards it so I still want to drive it with intent from the correct position right but I'm going to start launching that up a little bit and then as I'm fatiguing further now maybe I'm bringing it right down to my sides and I'm only getting up halfway two-thirds of the way and when I'm down there by the way I'm going to try and really launch with my shoulders out of the bottom at this point because even though for those of you who've seen this oh we say there's no moment to the dumbbell at that point and therefore there can be no challenge to the dumbbell lat raise but if you want to get squirrely and down into the weeds with this shit you can create a moment to them because that load has inertia which is funky right but it's basically going to mean that dumbbell currently doesn't want to swing out to the side it's sitting in space where it's sitting in space and if you want to launch it to the side aggressively and rapidly you now do have a moment to do that and so now you are going to get something out of that particular thing or maybe as it swings back down we'll see people with heavyish loads they've got to decelerate that load quite aggressively from swinging down around so they will get something in there so how we perform these exercises makes a difference but for the sake of you experiencing your delts blowing up a little bit and going like fuck me that burns start in the top half top third nice slow and controlled till that burns and you kind of can't get there anymore allow the arms to start coming down a little bit lower and accelerating out of the bottom just that little bit more as much as you can and then letting them come down to all the way down to the side and now really accelerating up as much as you can still don't use the hips make it come from the shoulders and really start pulling 
up and out with those delts on that thing. And you'll find, but I thought there was no moment here. And yet my shoulders are definitely burning. It's like, well, there is more going on than those things. So there is still nothing wrong with a good dumbbell lat raise. And you can get a lot out of it if you know what you're doing with it. Just to continue with that thought process well, as we're going on different tangents around lateral raise movements, um, you talk about there obviously accelerating out of the bottom of a dumbbell lateral movement. So we're getting quicker, trying to get quicker in our heads as we go through the movement. A key, I don't want to call it mistake, but a key thing that I see a, a lot of time where people aren't quite getting the application right is they're performing a lying cable lateral raise. So lying down on a bench, could be flat, could be a slight incline. Details this time don't matter exactly much. But basically in the start position, when the arms are almost down by the hips, arms are by the side, that cable is pretty much pulling across in some direction. Mm -hmm. So at that point, we've got a pretty much heaviest load in that start position. And as we go up through the movement, the load gradually gets lighter and lighter and lighter. And if you're lying down or close to lying down, the weight of your arm starts to come out of the equation potentially as well, depending on how much external rotation you go through and depending on a few different things. But anyway, relatively, it gets lighter even compared to how much weaker we get at the top position. So a lot of people will use maybe that same explosion at the bottom yep. and they'll continue that momentum up and almost they need to be doing the opposite of what Paul was talking about on the dumbbell lateral raise, where Paul was discussing accelerating. We need to decelerate. We need to consciously think about slowing down. And maybe you could start with a bit of explosion to get going because it's at heaviest point, especially as you fatigue. But then as you get halfway up, you got to think, okay, now I want to slow down. Now I want to decelerate on there to create a, to still create that optimal challenge rather than you've gone through the tough part and then you just continue to explode. It's like, no, you need to slow down. You need to have more control. And all of that is still predicated as well on the idea that you're accelerating or decelerating or controlling from the right shit moving. And as we said before, as people fatigue, they start just fucking shrugging stuff and doing all kinds of different things. So we might need to really develop the skill of moving the right crap first. And we might want to consolidate that for like six weeks before we worry about adding. Like there's no fire. Your client doesn't need giant delts by yesterday, I hope. Right. And if they do, you should probably have a conversation about expectations. Like we've got a long period of time to start developing these. It is often worth with clients, I find, slowing shit way down for the first period of time working together, finding great connection, tweaking stuff in a way. You, and you can't tweak stuff when you're going super fast because you just can't, right? So slowing it down, getting it, finding it, making sure it comes from where it is, and then building onto that some speed and stuff only provided we get it from the right place. Because when you go fast, you just default to whatever the fuck you normally do. And almost universally, that will be not quite what you want to be doing with the thing. So slowing those things down. Okay, we've got to get onto posterior delt, I imagine here, unless you want to add any more onto mid delt. I know we could keep going and going, but I think that's enough to <laughs> give a few key takeaways. minutes in, so we should move. <laughs> in, in case this turns into just mid delt chat, let's move around to the back. What you got? Um, so the key thing I think with, with rear delt is understanding like the anterior delt with a lot of pressing, with a lot of rowing movements, the rear delt is going to kick in. It's not like we're just going to hit the lats. We're just going to hit the traps, the rhomboids. Like, no, the rear delt's back there. I mean, yes, we can choose positions. We can choose setups to try and bias stroke, get a bit more emphasis through there. But like the anterior delt, there's almost always on top of the movement and generally on a lot of pressing or all pressing movements is going to kick in. We've got that pretty similar thing happen, happening in the back. Um, but when we're looking at trying to create a bit more bias to there, then as the elbow does get back past the body, the lats now lose their ability to help out. 
they start to be able to or be pushed off to the side a little bit and now it's more the rear delts can bias a little bit more on there so we're not just going to work in a position where the elbow is working purely behind the body but know at that point in range at that point in the range of motion that the lats now haven't got that same mechanical ability to continue pulling the elbow backwards and that's where the rear delts can really come into play so here's a, a couple of things because you i don't know about you but i've I found clients over the years um do this. this is actually something i played with, with with tom purvis out in oklahoma was uh you know if you're struggling, if someone either struggles to grow their rear delt or struggles to connect with it, and they're often related, right? Well, we might actually do just what Jimbo said, and like maybe we just do work the short position where we put them into a place where the lat and some other stuff basically can't help us, and go, can we find something back there? And one of the other ones that might also help out in shoulder extension like that is long head tricep. But so if you're doing like straight arm stuff. Like uh, imagine a, a rear delt fly machine type thing where you've got the load in your hands that you're pushing out against. Well, that load is trying to push me into elbow flexion and some kind of shoulder flexion or adduction, depending on the position I want to call it, right? Which if we think long head tricep does elbow extension and shoulder extension or abduction, in which case that load gives the long head tricep possibly a reasonable thing to do as well as my rear delt. So maybe I, well, if I start flexing my elbow as I do it, that sort of drops out long head tricep because long head tricep can't extend the shoulder without simultaneously trying to extend the elbow. And so if I'm doing a movement where my elbow is flexing rather than extending, then I'm probably not going to recruit long head tricep as much. So maybe I'm ending up doing this weird, like really small rowing motion behind the back of my body and just trying to find a connection to the rear delt and go, oh, oh, there he is, right? And maybe we work that for like a session or a couple of sessions, get that connection and then now I've got that, can I start to move it gradually through slightly bigger ranges of motion without losing it and then building that on top? And then maybe I come into my normal rows and now I've got an ability after I've done that for a month or whatever, right, to bring that guy more into play with other stuff. Whereas you might find other clients just don't need that. They're, they're already connected well to those things. That area has already grown quite well for them. So we've got these little things to, to consider that vary client to client. And then maybe last thing I'll say on that as well is, Jim said, when the arm gets behind the back of the body, the lats drop out. One thing to be aware of on that is that the visual of the arm behind the body is also going to be dependent on the thickness of the person. If you've got like a super jacked person, like the back of their tricep on Phil Heath might look like it's behind his body, but his lat attachment is still way wrapped around the front, right? So it's still pulling back quite a long way. So for him, that's going to be quite a different thing than someone who's skinnier, ganglier, that type of thing. When their arm gets back behind their body, their lat attachment around the front of the humerus is now behind the body enough that the lats are going to pull across the body rather than back any further. And it's at that point that the lat is going to drop out and we're not going to be left with too much else who's doing shoulder extension at that point other than the rear delt. So just a couple of little considerations on that. Yeah, just to touch on another point, obviously we touched about position, we touched about path of motion when working anterior, when working lateral. Um, when we're looking at position for working rear, there's a lot of times it's talked about, well, there's this one perfect position where your rear delt's <laughs> going to kick in. You've got to find this this one set position in 67.56 <laughs> degrees of abduction. That's the position for you. That's the one. Like, <laughs> that's the only one. It's like it's degrees of. Yes, there might be a sweet spot where you can get a bit more feel, but you're never going to know generically exactly where that is. And you can vary and adjust and play with the position. That's the great thing about the shoulder. The lateral raise doesn't have to be performed in this one same plane as we go through it, we can vary the 
start position and we can vary the path as we go through it. It's no different with a rear delt focus. And we're looking at obviously end range, we're looking at contracted range here. So we can vary, vary that contracted position, sometimes in a bit more abduction with the elbows nice and high, sometimes a bit more adduction with the elbows tucked by the side, so as that allows that elbow to move back by the body, that's fine. And sometimes in the middle as well. And along with that, we can play with where the line of force is coming from. Sometimes a bit more in front of us, sometimes a bit above us. So we're slightly externally rotated and we're pulling down slightly. And it's varying degrees, degrees of that. It's not this one perfect position that's going to be spot on for everyone. And one thing you'll you'll kind of see, if you put people into that abducted position, I call it like the, the T-shape row, right? So if you imagine normal, like let's imagine you're doing a TRX row, you've got your arms tucked into your side type thing. If you then swing right up to almost the top of that lat raise, I could call that a T row. You could call a V row somewhere in between if you like, whatever, you're just kind of roughly describing the shapes. Let's say we're up in a T row uh, style position as we go through. And you look at the back, if someone's moderately lean, you'll see different sizes and sweeps really of the rear delt. Like some people have quite a narrow triangle and a really quite small posterior delt and some people have quite a big triangle. You can kind of think the bigger the triangle of rear delt that someone has, the greater opportunity they've got to train it in different positions and sort of the narrower that band of muscle gets, the narrower and tighter we need to put things if we're gonna align them correctly. And it's one of those cool things that when you start seeing it in people is a thumb thing to play with that you can really adjust to an individual that is often not spoke about. And I like the T position for it because, and you can also do, as Jimbo said, in that internal and external rotation a little bit to try and find, where do I need to put this person, if they can get into those shapes, to align that triangle nicely with wherever my resistance happens to be? But it's, it's often not spoke about with training this kind of stuff. It's just, well, you just pull your arms back or you just do this. It's like, yeah, but the positions that I do it within are, you know, I can't say it's the same forever. People have varying amounts of opportunity to train a particular muscle depending on the origin insertion of, of those muscles and, and the scope they've got for, for hitting it. So um, it is one of those things that's cool to see the difference in people if you're nerdy anyway. <laughs> if you're nerdy like us. <laughs> and I hope you like the people listening yeah. to us. But I think that gives a, a good few um, takeaways as well as a bit of a foundational understanding in terms of why we've got them key takeaways as well. Any preference in like, I do because we yeah, we could probably eke out another no I was gonna say I'm lying I'm so wrong I've actually just I was just gonna get Jimbo to ask another question and then I went oh no he needs to wrap this up so we'll we'll talk about training frequency and some other stuff maybe uh as a completely separate podcast and we can try and talk about different muscle groups how often we like clients to train them and what we've got for for, for those fits because otherwise he's going to stab me after this podcast so that's some crap for you guys to be thinking about and bringing into your delt training as always if you have any questions or want clarification or anything drop me or Jimbo a message on Instagram and we would love to hear from you so we shall see you guys next time you can find us on all major platforms including apple podcast and google play if you like what we have to say here then please do leave a rating or review we're only here because of your support so thank you very much for listening if you want everyone else to understand how awesome biomechanics is as well then please do connect them with the pt project podcast